0: Welcome to Project Alchemy, the podcast. I'm Kobe Sheehan, a high school senior in Austin, Texas. I believe a meaningful life is something that we all seek to find. To discover what this looks like, I've interviewed inspiring adults in my community, asking them to tell their story of what happened in between, meaning their transition from adolescence to adulthood. Each will reflect on the lessons they've learned, both from triumphs and failures, and ultimately attempt to share what they believe is a life well lived. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Marty McGuire, the fiddle player for the Dixie Chicks, who are the top-selling all-female bands in America. And when I first began this project, I thought it would be cool to interview a musician, because I imagine most have to struggle financially with pursuing what they love, for a time at least. And while the Dixie Chicks may fall in this category, they also faced overwhelming adversity after their lead singer made a comment. That was something along the lines of we're a shame president bush is from texas and people went ballistic over this but the whole time the dixie chicks remained true to who they were and they never really backed down so i'm super excited for this interview and uh, to hear what marty has to say this is episode five of project alchemy marty welcome to the show to start what i'm wondering is did you always know that you wanted to be a musician
1: Well, having a musical background from the age of five, taking violin lessons, piano lessons, um, that was just the way of life in the Irwin household. Um, 30 minutes of of music lessons once a week, 30 minutes a day of practice. It just wasn't a question. Um, I remember my older sister trying to get out of it. And um, my parents would have to leave for a time. My mom was getting her master's degree in English. And my dad was working long hours at the school he was starting for dyslexic kids. And so they would actually leave a cassette tape recorder on in the corner behind a plant. To, and they would they would leave and say, okay, everybody needs to practice their instrument for 30 minutes. And little did we know they, they were taping us with a cassette recorder um, to see if we practiced. So you'd hear on the tape recording my sister sit down at the bench of the piano and start to play and then she'd get off the bench after about 30 seconds (laughs) (laughs) and I was just very I just did what my parents said so I was a neat child my my room was immaculate I did what I was told so I practiced my 30 minutes and so when we got to be a little bit older it seemed like I was probably the most serious about music and I was dyslexic, so schoolwork didn't come easy to me. And I think that's an extra reason why my, my parents were pushing, at least at least myself, towards music. Because um, they saw that maybe I, had, maybe I had an ear at a young age f- for music. Or maybe they just thought, well, she's not going to be a scholar, so. <laughs> so we'll push her towards music. I don't know. Um, but I felt like I had such a family support system around my music which I, which isn't always the case when you're really passionate about something um, you're, you know I just felt like everything I wanted to do musically I had my parents backing they paid for music lessons when I joined a band they would uh, drive me out to band lessons and wait around or I wanted to enter fiddle contests and they would pay my entry fee and we bought an RV as a uh, family, and we'd go to Bluegrass Festival so I could hear live music to reinforce my love of music. So I felt very, I, f- I feel now looking back, very fortunate that my family was so supportive. Yeah, which I isn't always struggle. the case, right? Yeah. I feel like
0: for most musicians, that's kind of a struggle is like, this isn't a, a serious career path, or, like, or the odds of it being are, are pretty slim, so they're discouraged. Um, but it's cool yeah. that you didn't have that.
1: It still baffles me that both my parents were educators, and they held music in such high regard. Um, My sister, who's in the Dixie Chicks, too, she plays the banjo. She's three years younger. She was an amazing student. We went to a very exclusive, uh, competitive private school, college prep school in Dallas, Green Hill School, and she was class president and had amazing grades, and she was kind of being groomed to go to the Air Force Academy. She was very athletic, and she decided her senior year she was going to defer college and go on the road and play the banjo. My parents didn't bat an eye. Wow. I'd, I'd, and, you know, I've asked them so many times, and they can't really give me a clear answer as to why they were so supportive and not scared.
0: It's almost like they knew.
1: Well, and even, even if you have the most amazing talent, what are the chances? A fiddle right. player and a banjo player you know being able to support themselves i knew that that was my passion and it was such a deep passion i didn't even tell anybody at school because i felt like it wouldn't be accepted maybe my closest friends knew but i would we would every weekend we'd go to bluegrass festivals or fiddle contests or and and i really didn't tell people what i was doing because everybody back then was into new wave or you know the you know, pop music <laughs> or whatever was cool at the time—it just wasn't cool. And being in the middle of Dallas, you're not really surrounded by people who listen to that kind of music.
0: Wow. Okay. Maybe a handful.
1: So I kept it a secret for a long time, but I—it was always a deep-rooted passion. Wow. For
0: sure. But I think people found out eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so coming out of high school or or college uh, or high school for Emily. Um, what did life look like for you guys at, at around you know age 20 um, uh, and pretty unsure time, I would imagine?
1: Yeah, um, I tried to go the college route. I went to community college some um, and I went to um, SMU for three semesters. So we were already playing in bars on the side. I got a scholarship to SMU and we were playing bars every night. I was coming in really late late to my classes in fear of losing my scholarship. You know, all that was very nerve-wracking because I think more even more so than my parents, I felt like I needed something to fall back on. I didn't right. want to end up just being a violin teacher or a fiddle teacher or something. I I needed I felt like I needed something. But right. it was a struggle just to stay in school because I was trying to do both.
0: Yeah. And so did you ever think about about stopping. Was that ever considered?
1: Yeah, but then we started playing, I think the turning point was we started playing on the street corner busking, and people were throwing cash in our cases, <laughs> and I was already paying for my own college. I, I, I got a um, student loan, so I just saw this, wow, I can play a fiddle tune? Somebody's going to throw you know, twenty bucks yeah, in the win-win. case. You know? Yeah. And I think it's the people I hooked up with, the other two original singers of the band, Laura Lynch and Robin Macy. They were a little bit older than us, ten years older than me, and they had amazing business sense and marketing sense. And they were like, Well, let's go let's we need an official band name and we need to go get a business card and we gotta go design a t shirt and we need to sell t shirts. And Emily and I were just kiddos. You know, I was nineteen, right. going on twenty. Wow. She was sixteen. Going on 17, so, um, or 17, and she, and we we were just in awe of, oh, so we can make this into a little business, and we can divide the cash, and pocket the cash, and then make it kind of fun. We would go place some places just for our supper, and just get a great meal, and when you're a starving student, that's huge, just tips yeah. and a meal, I'm happy, you know, and then... Little by little, the corporate gigs came in, and um, real paying gigs, and travel gigs, and we got an RV, and we went to, you know, so just, it was kind of s- stair steps of, of luck, and having the right people, kind of guiding us, and mentoring us, because we were essentially kids.
0: Yeah, so you hadn't even thought that that was possible, really? was it? No, there- oh.
1: we kind of hitched our wagon to other people that were already... Savvy in the business world, both of us women had. One was a teacher at St. Mark's, so she had a day job, and this was her passion. So you know, just at that age, I think nineteen twenty, you're just watching and learning and going, oh, okay. And it's really who you meet and who inspires you.
0: Yeah, and so so originally there were four of you, um, and so you started doing official gigs, right, and and um, actually getting a salary, um, but didn't did. Uh Did the pressure ever start to come on? Uh, I know it sounds like you and your sister had a pretty good mentality of, you know, this is what I love, and so I I kind of have to do it. Um, But did the other two feel that way?
1: I think they felt maybe a little more pressure, and it definitely was not a salary. It was, you know, whatever we had, we just divided by four. So it really was hit or miss, month to month. I I, I think I was pretty fearless back then, Um, And I felt like somebody would catch me if I fell, you know, and hopefully for people, it's their parents at that age. You know, you can move back home, you know, they'll buy you a burger if you need one. (laughs) Um, But financially, we were expected to kind of pay our own way. I bought my my own cars from the first car I ever had. I I was expected of me to survive and I don't remember being that nervous about it.
0: Wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um and and was that kind of the case for everyone? I'm sure there were there were periods where there's frustration, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the biggest frustration was just at that time in music at the, in the at the jobs we were playing sometimes we were disrespected we were treated like you know stupid women and there was a lot of sexism i can think of a lot of situations where i would go home crying because i would think this is humiliating (laughs) i remember one time we we would try to dress up in kitschy cowgirl outfits and um make it kind of cutesy you know and we were walking to a private show we were going to do for a bunch of people, and I, we overheard some guys that were not that much older than me saying, oh, it's the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders, and I bet they can't play, and I bet they can't sing. And I remember it really upset me to the fact where I, I, we went in, and it was from a, for a very small group of 20 to 25 people, and I remember just being in this zone where I wanted to play my ass off and just prove them wrong. And, you know, so sometimes the adversity lights a fire in your belly to just be better. Right,
0: right. At what point did the shift kind of occur um, that this started getting momentum? And, and eventually you became three, right? And, and you replaced the lead singer with Natalie. Um, and, and, did you kind of know at that point that this was, was going to go big?
1: It was a kind of a long transition. One singer wanted to remain very pure to bluegrass music, and so we asked her to leave because we were starting to go in a more commercial direction. I think that was the push uh, with the three of us, Laura, myself, and Emily, is we really wanted to see this, you know, grow like any business. Once we started moving into having drums and electric instruments, more opportunities were coming. We were making good money playing corporate shows. Um, we didn't have a problem booking gigs. It just opened up our world a lot. And then we realized we needed a stronger lead singer. So unfortunately, we felt like we had to move um, Laura out. I actually told my sister I was going to quit the band because <laughs> she and I were having some personal conflicts, and I wasn't happy, and I thought, you know what? I think I'm just going to go back to college and pick up my music degree. I'm just not happy, personally. And my sister said, I'm not in the band if you're not in the band. So, And we had already heard Natalie's voice on a Berklee School of Music audition tape. So,
0: Did you know why? What what the cause of of your unhappiness was?
1: I was really having a struggle with the personality of the other singer. So I personally needed to move on, and I think and I, think I knew in, in my heart of hearts that Emily, my sister, would come with me, that we would go do something together.
0: In your path to get where you are, at what point was life the most unsure for you? Or maybe you had the most doubts or felt lost?
1: I do remember times when money was very tight. I had already moved out, living on my own. My mom was remarried, and... They didn't want us to have the keys to the house that we used to have, you know, because they were newly in love and newly married. And so that was the first time I felt like, wow, I probably can't go home. And my mom would do every holiday, and our family was a big holiday, but for Easter, we would all get an Easter basket. And it usually, it didn't just have candy in it. It would be like the special earrings we saw in the store or, you know, just something personal that we liked, you know, and then some eggs filled with candy. But for that Easter, I remember I had been telling my mom how I was just struggling and struggling, and and Emily was still living at home, so she was fine. So their Easter baskets were filled with all these great things, and mine was a bunch of things from my kitchen pantry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Like... Yeah, I remember there was like condensed milk in there and like random things. Was, I felt like my mom, I was really bummed. I felt like my mom went in the pantry and went, hmm, what don't I use a lot of? What do I have two of? Oh, I'll get some black beans and some, you know, whatever, canned tomatoes. And she was trying to be helpful and help me, kind of give me something that maybe I needed. But um, it was depressing. I remember thinking, gosh, I... I don't want to be on the the poverty line um, and feel this much pressure. I knew at any point I could just go play the street corner and make a little money to pay my rent. But it was was a depressing time. I I think lack of money, funds, enough to live is very real, very scary. Having debt, too. I had a lot of college debt. Even though I only went a couple years, two and a half years to college, I had tons. Um, so just, and, and being kind of a loner, you're out of the house, you don't have a boyfriend, you don't have a husband, you know, there's, there's not really anybody there other than your your childhood family, you know, and I knew I could go back to them, but that, that, was, that was hard.
0: So if it had never gotten so big and you're still playing at Six Flags venues, do you think this would still be your life's path?
1: I think if I had gotten to a certain age and things weren't happening like I had hoped with more kind of commercial success, I would have thought, you know what? It, it does kind of qualify your success in a way. And I, I hate that that's the way it is, but how long do you keep pounding the pavement before you just not give up, but... Just go, okay, I need a new direction. And I think that's why people quit. They just think the universe is telling me that this is not going to happen.
0: Right. And sometimes it's true.
1: It seemed like every time I felt down like, okay, I gave it a good old try, but maybe I should go back to school or get a job doing whatever, um, some prized gig would come. Or I remember early, early on, we got the opportunity to um, open for um, Garth Brooks at the Oklahoma State Fair. And just this, this special opportunity would just come swooping in and Almost pick like up our sign. spirits. Yeah, like a sign, like this is going to be okay. Just this little dangling carrot that kind of keeps taking you down the path.
0: Wow. In that young age, before you were too worried about money, what seemed to bring you the most fulfillment?
1: I felt fulfillment with having an audience giving back. Just the smile on people's faces, the tips or the accolades or the you know prizes in the fiddle contest or, or whatever. I mean, it's, it, it is a pretty amazing experience when you feel like you're good at something and you're getting to give your gift to somebody else. Because I, I did feel confident in my fiddle playing. I worked hard at it. And I I liked that opportunity to get in front of people and go, wow, because at the time, I mean, there were way more female performers, but at the time you were almost a novelty to be female and be able to jam with the guys, you know? So that was very empowering.
0: And then at at some point that came to be the most successful all-female group in history. (laughs) And so, so when you reach that peak, Was it the same? Was it the same kind of thing you were looking for?
1: I feel like it gets better. It got better as more success happened. And I'm really thankful for just all the struggles along the way and the time that it took to kind of lead up to the success. Because I felt so grateful. And I'd done every job in the band. I'd been the bus driver, the tour manager, the, you know, the t-shirt sales girl, the, you know, we, <laughs> wow. we used to do silly things like when we got our first sound um, system, we ha- would hire, we only had enough money to hire a professional one night to run our sound, so we would hire him for one night, and then we would take a snapshot with our camera, of where he set all the knobs, which, of course, is completely ridiculous because you're then going to go to a different show and knobs are going to get moved in transit or you're going to be in a different room and the knobs don't mean anything. Um, So, But we were just trying to learn all the aspects of what we did. And then when you finally do have success, you you appreciate what goes into all those jobs.
0: Right. It it makes it even better. Yeah. At that moment when everything kind of crashed down, how did you guys respond to that? Because at the time, it didn't seem like such a big thing, right?
1: No, it didn't. You mean when the comment was made? Right. Yeah. When the comment was made, it felt like nothing at all. There was even a Texas ambassador in the crowd that we met after, and nobody said anything, not one thing to us about that night. And that was the eve of war. We were watching the tanks rolling in, and we were all... I remember before every show, we would always kind of grab hands and kind of say something positive about the show we're about to do or whatever and kind of encourage everybody, and we just felt quiet. We felt a little sick to our stomachs that we were performing on the eve of the Iraq invasion, you know? So we got through that, and I think it was a few nights later we... Heard that people were pretty up in arms about what was said, and of course it had gone over the
0: wire and and just yeah, completely blown out of proportion and and the things I mean the things that happened, like receiving death threats, how did you guys find the courage to stand up to that? Because I think one thing that really defined that period was you never backed down and and even going on stage after the threat was made, what did you guys feel it? Like?
1: That was really scary. We could have canceled that show. Natalie didn't want to cancel that show. That was a time when we had a stage in the round, and we start the show by coming up in the middle of the stage with people all 360, all the way around us, which makes you more vulnerable than if you're just at the end of one arena and you can kind of provide security. That particular show is in Dallas, And the Texas Rangers had come in, and there were bomb-sniffing dogs everywhere. And you really felt they, they didn't want us to pull in on a bus. They wanted to fly us in, get off the plane, basically, over to the show, back on, back, fly out right away. So all these precautions were being taken. And I remember Natalie just making lots of jokes about it. I think that was her way to kind of relieve the stress. I was just on the verge of tears the whole time and just thinking every song we did that night oh it's going to be this one cuz Earl has to die so we have to die or you know oh it's going to be the last song of the night or it's going to be this song because you know your just mind is going crazy and the whole time I'm thinking don't stand anywhere near Natalie because it was directed at her right. specifically I think about artists these days that are one person one female out there with a bunch of roadies and band guys and they're they're just this island and we have always felt the strength in our numbers whether it was four of us or three of us so that is it kind of creates like an insulation around you when bad things happen and if you've got other people then, like a manager, we had a great manager at the time, and a great road manager, and these people that you know really love you. They're not just there to make money off of you. And you just kind of all band together and make decisions. This, is this right or is this wrong? And then you, of course, rely on your upbringing. I knew you know people stomping on our CDs and calling us traitors and showing up and protesting our shows. I knew that was innately wrong I, I knew that it was okay what she said so i had no conflict about supporting her because and it was a little bit empowering like oh i'm willing to lose my career for what's right wow that's that feels pretty good when you find, if you ever find yourself in that moment it's it's very strengthening and empowering yeah
0: so if you could go back and erase that from ever happening do you think you would
1: no Absolutely not. We had life pretty easy, and I feel like now we have more to say, and I think our audience identifies with us being honest. And I like artists that sing about honest things, whether it's divorce or lost love or anything. Yeah, failures.
0: Failure, any kind of failure. So, So on that note, are there any failures that you look back at and kind of wish they never happened?
1: I wish I hadn't gotten divorced. You know, that that's a failure I live with day-to-day that's that's super hard, just because when you have three children with somebody, it's it's hard to think you failed at something like that. Just for my own part, that that's probably the biggest failure I feel in my life. Career-wise, I, I don't really think about it. We never counted albums sold or thought, oh, we have to have this many awards, or I don't know, maybe we're just not overachievers in that way. But per- in my personal life, I definitely feel like an overachiever. I don't I don't want to mess up being a mom or right. a wife. And it's hard when, when
0: other people are, are counting on you, right? And it's mm-hmm. not just yourself. Um, yeah. But ultimately, um, do you think that was the right decision? Yes,
1: I do. But you know, you one of the things I had thought of when you were talking about hardships or failures with your career is I do feel like the more successful I got, I did pay a personal price. So you sometimes give up something important to be successful, and you have to be mindful of what you're giving up. So I remember hearing, well, you're, you know, you're married to your career. And that was hurtful because I thought, I, I kind of am, <laughs> you know, because once you have that taste of success and you just, you're on a roll, you become one-track minded and and a lot of times your relationships suffer.
0: Yeah, and, and as, I mean, as you get older and, and more successful, um, even, I, mean, I think this is the case for all of us, it, it feels like there's only more on our plate and more responsibilities. Um, and so how do you go about managing that time, or doing it now, and and really finding what gives you meaning.
1: My children give me my life the most meaning, for sure. And it was a struggle to have them. I went through in vitro to have them. And they're just everything in my life. I would give up my career in a second, anything in a second. And I resist a lot of the distractions that I think young people are, you know, prone to having as big distractions in their life and keep them from being present. So because I didn't grow up with social media, I see what a distraction it is and that it, it might have some good attributes, but it's it's not for me. I, I probably need to self-promote more or promote the band more or you know, whatever, but I don't do any of that on purpose. I just, I've seen the negativity. I don't want to invite negativity into my world if I don't have to. There's only so many hours in the day. So I think it's about figuring out what you want to do with your 24
0: hours. What advice would you give to someone in an unstable or unsure part of their life?
1: Well, I think if you're doing something from your gut and from your heart, or to serve others, or if if the reasons you're doing it are pure, it could even just be pure passion. And you wake up and you live it and breathe it and think it and have to do it and feel that drive. Uh, I say, barrel on through as long as you can, without if you're not hurting anybody else. You know, if it's purely money motivated, I think that innately has issues that come along with it. I think there has to be some other driver, but I, I, I would have been willing to live in a trailer and play music for certain, certain years of my life, probably not after 30. But uh, if you're willing to make the sacrifices, who knows? Who's to say that tomorrow you're not going to get that one opportunity that just lights everything on fire? Right. You, see those, you see those documentaries all the time about yeah. people that you know had a business out of their garage or their spare room or whatever. So I don't, I don't know you have to figure out your tipping point. What what is, is going too far and what you won't let happen to your life.
0: Yeah, and you have to be honest with yourself. But but I think I think you're right. I think it sometimes it takes that it takes the, the hard path to get to that that place of fulfillment to end. If there are three things you could say to your 20-year-old self, or since you can't say that to any 20-year-old, what would they be?
1: Don't let other people tell you what you're good at and not good at. I think would be one, if I'd listened to a lot of people, I might not do what I'm doing. I think value people over things. I think when you stick with people and you are true to others and put love first and, you know... I like to think that I didn't burn bridges personally, that I did the right thing in every situation, at least interpersonally, Um, just to be a decent person. I think that takes you so far. People will come back around to help you when you need help.
0: Yeah, I love that. And most of us, we acknowledge that and we say that it it may be true, but it's hard to always remember it because it's it's easy to get so caught up in achieving things, uh, even at the cost of, of relationships.
1: I remember just thinking, there wasn't any time. I've got to do it now, 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 now. And, and when I look, now I'm almost 50, I look at 20-year-olds and think, slow down, you've got time, and you guys live in such a I-want-it-now world. Not necessarily that you want it now, but everybody wants it from you now. Right. And I think there's time to breathe And, um, one thing I did learn about creativity and I was talking to, um, Redwood high school, my um, niece goes to Redwood high school in the music program. And one thing I wanted to tell them was creativity only comes when you're quiet. It doesn't come like if I'm trying to be creative, I don't have headphones on listening to music. I'm not on my phone. I'm not having a conversation. I'm not multitasking. I'm not cooking while I'm trying to be creative. I'm seriously trying to find a way to be completely silent. You know, walking out in nature or sitting—it's uncomfortable. I think, especially for people, young people in this day and age, to be okay to—it's okay to be bored. It's okay to be sitting and just maybe it's not meditation, but it's letting creativity flow through you.
0: I like that. Uh, so thank you, Marty. Uh, I, I love the conversation. Thank uh-huh.